Welcome to Halal Money Matters, presented by Saturna Capital. I'm Monique Salam. I'm Christopher Patton. I remember, I think it was the first episode of Halal Money Matters. I made a joke about keeping all my money in a Pringles can under my mattress. And we kind of had a, just a very short talk about inflation and how, well, you know, it hasn't really been that bad recently, but it's still a risk if you just have your money in a Pringles can. Um, and that seems like a great time to revisit that idea now because inflation. Yeah, it's not only a risk for me coming over and stealing your uh, <laughs> but you don't know which mattress. That, so, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But more, it's a factor of the fact that, you know, I think, you know, that Pringle can, for example, filled with coins would have bought you, let's say, you know, X amount of goods. But now it's going to be less than that, those same amount of goods. And that's what inflation is all about. And uh, we have a great guest today to talk about that. Yes, Bryce Fegley. He's a analyst and portfolio manager at Saturna on numerous funds. Uh, he's a stats guy. He's a risk management guy. Uh, and so I think he'd be a great person to chat with about this. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing is to, to really look at it from a, what is inflation for one thing? How does it affect you? And then how does it affect your investments? And hopefully we'll try to cover all three of those in this episode. Yeah, because I think people think they know what inflation is and they may be right, but it, it's a bigger picture. And uh, for people who think it's a constant force, they may be confused as to why it's all over the place right now. That's very true. So Bryce, welcome to the show. I'm really Thank excited you. to have you. This will be a good discussion regarding uh, inflation. I know it's a fairly uh, hot topic right now in the news. And really, I think, um, you know, the best way for me to kind of talk about inflation is like you probably can see it at the grocery store. Yeah, you know, when people, regular people think about inflation, they think about their typical consumption basket, which is probably food prices and energy prices, what they pay at the pump, what they pay for groceries, uh, just like you said, money. and when the Federal Reserve calculates inflation, um, they have two measures. They have a core measure and a, what they call a headline measure. And the core measure strips those food and energy prices out because they tend to be kind of volatile. But at the same time, um, that's often what consumers, you know, regular people think of as inflation it is what they uh, pay for food and energy prices in particular. I think most people have some idea of what they think inflation means. And it's like, oh, well, I paid $3 to go to the movies when I was a kid and now everything's more expensive. So that's always a force. Why is it such a hot topic right now? Well, inflation for the first time in the past couple of decades is running hotter than what the Federal Reserve intends it to, or what I guess people have expected it to. And really for the previous um, almost 20 years prior to now, inflation has been running uh, below expectations. And so I think that that change in and of itself is a big deal because we've gone from uh, prices not rising as fast as anticipated to suddenly riding, rising uh, quite a bit faster than anticipated. And that's sort of a, a mental shock to people, uh, the way they plan and the way that they experience uh, prices. But Chris, you mentioned the fact of, uh, you know, my father always talked about this as a kid, how much he paid for a, a scoop of ice cream, how much he paid for a pack of gum or a candy bar and that sort of thing. And, you know, he talked about nickels and dimes and now some of these things are two or three or four or $5. Um, so there's been a lot of inflation over our lifetimes and it tends to come um, kind of gradually over time so that you don't really notice it unless you go back, uh, you know, 20 years and you think about a price. But yeah, uh, more recently, 
it's become more of an everyday phenomena. You see that something that you bought this week is quite a bit more expensive than it was uh, this week a year ago. And, and so that is more of a shock than we're used to. So let's kind of maybe back up a little bit. and um, kind of, So how would you define inflation? Like what causes prices to go up? Why can't they just stay the same? Yeah, that's a great question, Monin. I think maybe a little bit of an eco- economic history lesson might help with this. And without going into too much detail, um, the United States and many other countries used to have kind of a, a hard money standard that was tied to a commodity or a precious metal like gold or silver. One thing that happened in the old era was uh, it was a lot harder for the central bank, like the Federal Reserve, to respond to shocks in the economy by changing the rate of inflation. In the Great Depression, for example, um, this is kind of crazy in the context of the world we live in today, but Roosevelt basically forced investors, private citizens, to give up their holdings of gold. And the federal government collected that gold and paid everybody a little more than $20 an ounce for all of the gold that they had uh, on hand. And then (laughs) basically the next day, Roosevelt changed the price of gold from $20 to $35. And that was a very rapid inflation, um, kind of instantaneously. But it also was important to rescue the economy because it had the effect of um, basically making many people much richer in dollars on paper relative to to the gold price. Kind of an unusual time. It's hard to imagine the government today coming to people and our heavily armed populace and um, demanding them to turn over their gold. Uh, But that's actually what happened in 1932 and 33. So the difference would be basically, you know, hard backed currency versus a fiat currency. But wasn't it also, you know, what what I think they used to do in the old, old empires and stuff was the fraction of the gold that was in a coin, they could manipulate that to be able to, you know, print more money or, or not print, print, I mean, make more coins and distribute more. That would be similar to inflation, right? That's exactly right, Monim. And um, up until the mid 70s, 1971, when we dropped the gold standard uh, for good during Nixon's presidency, that was kind of the case in the US that. Um, there was actually a hard tie between the amount of dollars that the Federal Reserve could print and the amount of gold that the Federal Reserve held. I think it was 40% of the dollars in circulation needed to be backed by gold. And it was there was a set price for that um, exchange. And so people could turn in gold for dollars or turn in dollars for the same amount of gold. Uh, when we dropped the gold standard for good in 1971, that meant that the... Um, currency essentially had no backing, no kind of official hard money backing at all. And it became more of a convenience as a unit of exchange. And, and so the value, there was, there's no intrinsic value of dollars anymore. Uh, but what there is a value of is in allowing people to exchange one thing for another at um, prices that are intermediated through dollars. So everything has a dollar price. And the dollar has an official backing with the government and the treasury and the Federal Reserve and so forth. That makes it really convenient as a way to um, transfer value from one kind of good to another or from services to goods or from labor to um, consumption and all of those sorts of things. And and that's really the value of a fiat currency, uh, even if it doesn't have an intrinsic value. So maybe now is a good time for me to tie this into what the fiat currency has to do with inflation. And um, you'll know that in the 70s, we experienced a pretty 
big increase in inflation in prices. It's uh, an era that it basically had higher inflation than we have now and for quite a prolonged period. Um, and maybe it's not a coincidence that that came after dropping the, uh, the tide of gold and, and becoming a fiat currency. And since that time, they seem to have gotten the um, inflation component of running a, a fiat currency under control. We've had a period known as the Great Moderation where prices weren't really that volatile and um, inflation expectations were kept pretty stable. Uh, so now the current environment is a little bit of an interruption for that, but in the scope of history, um, that's what's been going on. Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, a lot of companies don't raise prices. They actually add more stuff to the same price that you're getting, whatever it is you're getting. An iPhone, for example, it's very rare that, you know, you'll get incremental price increases on an iPhone without having greater you know, stuff that you're getting for the same price that you were getting before. Yeah, you know, a technology is a real deflationary force. Um, the rate of technological improvement in a lot of goods like televisions and phones and electronics in general, uh, you get more in quality for the same price. And so that's kind of a deflationary phenomena where, um, you know, you paid $1,000 for a TV this year, but it comes with 20% more value than the one um, last year or, or before. Uh, because of the rate of technological progress. And that's not true throughout the economy. There's lots of things like education and healthcare and other facets, particularly in the service economy where um, it's hard to increase productivity or technology in a way that generates that. And, and so that's an interesting phenomenon within the economy of what prices are going up and what prices are going down, where's value being added more than prices are increasing and vice versa. There's a great example uh, about a, an orchestra. Um, a guy called William Balmo has this idea of a cost disease. And he talks about the output of a symphony orchestra. It's really hard to squeeze more productivity out of the players in the orchestra. There's not a whole lot you can do. Um, and so their wages just tend to increase with the general price level. And um, they're not necessarily gonna produce more output. Uh, whereas your television, as technology increases, uh, you'll have more pixels, you'll have bigger screens, all of these sorts of things that make uh, today's television so much better than they were five or even 10 years ago. That's quite a bit of a different thing. Mm -hmm. Before we get into more specifically like what's going on right now, are the contributing factors to the rate of inflation always clear or are there sometimes disagreements about what is causing it at a particular moment? Yeah, the determinants of inflation are kind of tricky to get a grasp on. Um, I think in the big picture, there tends to be supply side inflation and demand side inflation. And maybe we're having a little bit of both now. But one thing we could point to is that the coronavirus and the pandemic did interrupt uh, some of the supply of goods, particularly of uh, semiconductor chips. And um, the, the particular example that people talk about a lot recently and is a big deal is the fact that it's hard to build modern cars without a lot of semiconductors because they control a lot of the electronic functionality of today's automobiles. So without those chips, uh, which have been interrupted by um, the pandemic, uh, labor and, and uh, supply chain disruptions, we can't build cars. And that means that existing cars are going up in price pretty dramatically and there's a shortage. 
Um, and that shortage is, is causing prices to rise. Alongside that, you have gasoline, which is also rising in price. Those are big components of an inflation index, are the price of automobiles and the price of gas that people pay at the pump. And that right there is you know, part of the economy that is inflating. So that's kind of a supply side example. On the demand side, you have pretty easy monetary policy since the coronavirus pandemic. The Federal Reserve acted swiftly to uh, pump a lot of money into the economy and lower interest rates that um, creates easier credit conditions for businesses and consumers. Uh, it lowers mortgage rates, it lowers borrowing rates. And at the same time, Congress pumped quite a bit of money into the economy in fiscal relief by um, making unemployment assistance really generous, uh, increasing childcare allowances, and uh, basically giving people additional cash to spend. And so that created an additional layer of demand. Um, and those two things, the supply shortages, and then the uh, availability of cash in consumers' wallets to bear those price increases may have uh, worked together to kind of create a self-perpetuating cycle of higher prices, at least for the time being. Uh, so that maybe is an explanation of, of forces that create inflation, um, and they can vary over time. But right now, we seem to have a little bit of both supply and demand side inflation. So Bryce, you know, why even have inflation? Why not just keep the prices the same? That's a great question, Monim. Um, after some of the uh, depressions and recessions in the past, Economists kind of came around to this view that a um, small and stable amount of inflation is actually a good thing in an economy. And so we have this sort of 2% target that is in modern acceptance today among central banks, I guess, across the world. And I guess what that does is if you have a slowdown in the economy, maybe companies aren't earning as much as they had expected and they're trying to cut costs. If there was no inflation, they'd be forced to reckon with the idea of cutting costs by either um, lowering people's wages or, or firing workers. And workers don't really like to have their wages lowered. So companies tend in those environments to just fire people or lay people off. And you know the people that are left will have their wages um, staying the same, but the company will have to pay less to its workers because it'll have a smaller workforce. So that's one of the um, manifestations of stable prices is companies basically fire a bunch of workers. And in the US, the Federal Reserve has been charged by Congress with what they call this dual mandate to have um, stable prices and support maximum employment. And the trade-off that they make by allowing a little bit of inflation is that um, employers can maybe avoid laying as many people off by um, having a small amount of inflation. So now they're not expecting, they're not getting as much revenue as they expected. Um, and they don't raise people's wages at all for a few years while inflation um, kind of eats into those workers' real earnings, inflation adjusted earnings, because their, their pay is no longer keeping up with inflation, but they're not getting a, um, a pay cut. So the company has kind of earned back um, some of its lost profit just by not raising people's wages, but it didn't have to cut them in nominal terms and it maybe didn't have to lay as many people off. So that's kind of the trade-off is um, the people in the economy, actors in the economy expect a certain amount of inflation. They make plan long-term plans based on that. 
if inflation is a little bit higher or growth is a little bit lower, they can react to that without making big changes to their business. Whereas if uh, there was no inflation and the economy was a little bit slower and revenues were a little bit lower, uh, maybe they have to fire a bunch of workers. And, and that creates knock-on effects because now those workers are not uh, consuming as much and, um, and that can leave it into, into sort of a feedback cycle that makes uh, recessions or even depressions more prolonged. So speaking of the forces that create inflation, I know in the Muslim community, there's a lot of always talk about, um, you know, when the bank, you know, borrows money at a certain rate, and then, and then, it, you know, when it gives out a loan, it gets it for another rate. And the delta, because there is that profit margin delta in there, then you're always going to have inflation because the banks are the ones that are printing more money and um, you have the, the velocity of money. Um, what do you think about that? Definitely the idea of debt and um, the interest, the amount of interest that people pay on debt is very closely related to inflation and um, inflation expectations. So uh, if you borrow money to purchase a house at a set inflation, at a set interest rate, and inflation is higher than expected in the period after that, as a borrower, uh, you come out good because your interest payments are, um, are set where the value of your house might be increasing faster than expected, uh, causing you to gain more equity. As a Muslim investor or in investors who don't use debt to finance activities, you know, that can be a problem. So you talked about it's running a little hotter than expected, maybe. What is the concern? What are some of the ramifications of that? Yeah, inflation going faster than expected can cause a number of distortions in the economy. And I'll give a couple of examples. One example is that it can kind of become a self-perpetuating phenomena if people expect prices to rise at a faster rate than they have in the recent past they may pull ahead purchases that they had um, not budgeted for uh, in hopes that they can pay a lower price now than they will a year from now. And so that um, in itself sort of of forces um, prices in the shorter term to rise more than expected because of competition for goods. Uh, So then that kind of race sets into motion a a feedback loop where um, companies are running out of things and they need to uh, go to their suppliers and purchase more of them in the shorter term than they had planned. And the suppliers raise the prices and they go to their raw materials producers and try to buy more materials to make those supplies. And the raw materials producers don't have enough. So they have to uh, increase their output um, and hire more workers and, uh, you know, buy more equipment. And um, that whole cycle kind of takes a, a little bit of time to play out, but it's kind of all um, generating this sort of feedback loop where um, people's willingness to, or, or desire to purchase things now that they might've put off uh, into the future sets in motion this whole chain of events that um, perpetuates itself. So, uh, and that's, you know, and that, that leads to higher costs, costs and stuff like that. And, you know, for the Muslim consumer, I mean, it's kind of a, a double thing, right? So, because like, you have money in the bank, for example, and prices are rising. And so you have to pay zakat on that. Not only prices are rising, but you can have to pay zakat on it. So, you know, you, you want to, you don't want to leave your money in the bank. So, so what are some like good places that, or investments that maybe, um, you know, you can, you can invest in that would 
keep up with inflation at least or or be able to dodge it. I just want to touch on the idea of Zakat for a moment because when prices are rising because of inflation and you pay Zakat on that, um, the money that you're, uh, the additional money that's going to Zakat isn't actually money that is, um, you know, real. It's uh, in a sense, basically just an increase in prices that you have to bear. It's similar with taxation. If you own uh, an investment that increases in value by 3%, but inflation during the time was 4%, after inflation, you've actually lost money, but you still owe tax on that 3% return. So when we're talking about inflation from an investment perspective, you're trying to avoid that loss of purchasing power and particularly the distortion of paying tax and paying zakat and um, other kinds of fees that are um, eroding your purchasing power even further. Because, um, you know, we're thinking about a situation now where investment returns or interest rates are lower in many cases than the current rate of inflation. And so um, investors are already losing money in purchasing power terms and then being asked to pay tax and zakat on that loss of purchasing power, it's not even real. Uh, so to get back to your question, uh, what do investors do in that environment? There are um, uh, a number of different investments that do tend to do better during inflationary times and others that tend to do worse. And it depends on, um, you know, you're sort of, whether you're a borrower or an investor. For an investor, uh, real estate, tends to keep up with inflation because it's tied to a real asset and, and real assets in general, uh, land, real estate, um, sometimes commodities, uh, precious metals like gold and silver um, tend to be better hedges against inflation than other things. The stock market uh, has traditionally done okay in inflationary times. It's not the worst place to have money invested. What types of investments do poorly during inflation uh, well, those are bonds and fixed income because they tend to pay a, a fixed interest rate. And when inflation increases, that um, interest rate becomes less attractive because it doesn't compensate you for the loss of purchasing power, which is what we were talking about a moment ago. So yeah, you know, things that are tied to real economic output or, um, or have a tangible value tend to do better in inflationary periods than, than those that are more um, financially oriented. Are you saying that I can't hedge against inflation through NFTs of episodes of Halal Money Matters? <laughs> well, the, the cryptocurrency phenomena, proponents of it have talked about cryptocurrency as sort of being an inflation, inflation-proof type of asset. Uh, whether a cryptocurrency is an asset or not, or is a security or not, or or um, probably beyond the scope of our conversation. Uh, but they do have characteristics that do make them tangible in some ways. The prices are very volatile and there's a lot of emotion and um, speculation in that market that really, um, I think, obscures and, and totally overwhelms any kind of monetary correlation to inflation. So what can investors do to mitigate the threat of inflation? Yeah, the threat of inflation is really the threat that a dollar a year from now won't buy you as much as it does today. So it's that loss of purchasing power. And as an investor, what you want to look for is a way to earn income that makes up for that, that recoups your, your loss of purchasing power. 
Uh, one thing that the central bank does when inflation is rising is they tend to raise interest rates that um, not only is intended to slow down the economy and cool inflation, but it also provides the benefit for investors to earn uh, more money to offset that loss of purchasing power through um, investments in fixed income securities or bank deposits and so forth. For Muslim investors, that's problematic though, uh, because you tend to want to avoid usury and the earning of interest. Uh, so we have to look at ways to earn income, investment income outside of fixed income. Uh, and there are a number of options for that, including real estate, which is typically packaged into uh, vehicles called real estate investment trusts. There are many different kinds of properties that can be put in a real estate investment trust. And some for Muslim investors are inappropriate potentially because they earn interest on mortgage income. But others where the um, exposure to interest income or the reliance on uh, debt financing is under minimum thresholds, uh, those types of real estate investment trusts could be appropriate for Muslim investors. A disadvantage with real estate investments is because they are packed into these trusts, there are several layers of fees. There are fees to actually you know, administer a piece of real property. There are landlords and companies that are involved with property management. There are the real estate investment trust managers who have to go and buy these uh, pieces of property and maybe hire the uh, property managers and then pay themselves as well. And those fees can add up to the point where maybe that is a less advantageous way of earning investment income than alternatives like investing in the stock market and earning dividend income. Uh, it's worth knowing that the history of the Amana funds is um, based on a desire to have an income alternative for Muslim investors beyond what they could earn at a bank by holding cash in a savings account. And so the Amana Income Fund, even though it's invested almost all in the stock market, was a fund that invests in dividend the dividend income of equity securities. And so that in its original inception was intended to offer a cash alternative to Muslim investors. It comes with some volatility, but the returns of the fund had been um, quite a bit higher than what you would have earned in, uh, in a bank account over the years to offset that. Uh, and we hope that that will continue into the future, obviously. Uh, but those are some of the ways that we think about inflation, you know, having an income stream to offset the loss of purchasing power. Those are dollars and cents, hopefully, that are flowing into your portfolio as income that you can count against that inflation. It's worth mentioning that equities tend to do okay in inflationary environments relative to some of the other asset classes. But within equities, um, there are economic sectors that are more advantaged or disadvantaged by the inflation uh, numbers. So for example, um, commodity-oriented companies and sectors like uh, energy and materials uh, have an ability to pass on their higher prices to their customers. And so their stock prices can do better as their earnings and their revenues um, are less affected. Not, not to make you a prognosticator, Bryce, but you know, what are your thoughts about where does inflation end up and, and how does that affect not only the economy, but the, the market itself? Right. I mentioned earlier that we'd gone from this period of continually having inflation uh, lower than the Federal Reserve's target. The target has been about 2%. And for um, a number of years in the US, we were struggling to even have prices increase at 2% at all. So with that context, I do think it's interesting that um, in the last year or so, when inflation has been run higher than expected, the Fed could have said, well, this is exactly what we said would happen. We were going to allow prices to kind of catch up on the upside for the shortfalls that have happened in, in previous years on the downside. 
But what actually happened is the Fed seems to have panicked a little bit because um, I think they remember that inflation on the upside can cause these feedback cycles and distortions that are hard to get a handle on if they get running too long. Prices have caught up to um, you know, fill in some of that past deficit rather dramatically and quickly and are probably at risk of overshooting um, you know, fairly substantially if, if they were to continue. The two views that you could take about the future are inflation has become entrenched and consumers are going to um, race each other to purchase goods and services now rather than wait um, because they're worried about prices rising and that will beget additional inflation until the Fed does something dramatic like raise interest rates uh, to, um, to slow the economy down and forestall that behavior. The opposing view might be that there's already been a fair amount of inflation and it's actually starting to pinch consumers' pocketbooks. And as much as they might be worried about prices rising next year and try to pull ahead purchases from the future, they're also looking at their pocketbooks and thinking, wow, um, prices have already risen so much, I hesitate to even pay what's being asked now. And maybe that has a sort of a self-breaking aspect where the economy um, will adjust to that automatically rather than have it turn into this feedback cycle of higher prices. consider an investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain this and other important information about the Amana Funds in a current prospectus or summary prospectus, please visit amanafunds.com or call toll-free 1-800-728-8762. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. The Amana Funds are distributed by Saturna Brokerage Services, member FINRA and SIPC, and a wholly owned subsidiary of Saturna Capital, the investment advisor to the Amana Funds. Investing involves risk, including the risk that you could lose money. The Amana Funds restrict investments to those companies consistent with Islamic and sustainable principles, which limits opportunities and may affect performance. Dividend investing does not assure a profit or guarantee against a loss. Fund share prices, yields, and total returns will change with market fluctuations as well as the fortunes of the countries, industries, and companies in which it invests. Foreign investing involves risks not normally associated with investing solely in U.S. securities. These include fluctuations in currency exchange rates, less public information about securities, less governmental market supervision, and the lack of uniform financial, social, and political standards. Foreign investing heightens the risk of confiscatory taxation, seizure or nationalization of assets, establishment of currency controls, trading suspensions, or adverse political or social developments that affect investments. This material is for general information only and is not a research report or commentary on any investment products offered by Saturna Capital. This material should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security in any jurisdiction where such an offer or solicitation would be illegal. We do not provide tax, accounting, or legal advice to our clients, and all investors are advised to consult with their tax, accounting, or legal advisors regarding any potential investment. Investors should not assume that investments in the securities and or sectors described were or will be profitable. This podcast is prepared based on information Saturna Capital deems reliable. However, Saturna Capital does not warrant the accuracy or completeness of the information. Investors should consult with a financial advisor prior to making an investment decision. The views and information discussed in this commentary are at a specific point in time, are subject to change, and may not reflect the views of the firm as a whole. All material presented in this publication, unless specifically indicated otherwise, is under copyright to Saturna. No part of this publication may be altered in any way copied or distributed without the prior express written permission of Saturna Capital.